0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back. You know, part of the fun of doing this show is we always talk with really cool entrepreneurs, but sometimes we get a chance to talk and learn from some entrepreneurs playing in the big leagues. Today's guest has built an amazing career and a group of companies all focused sort of in the mid, not mid-level M&A and private equity, but right below that, but to many of us now looking at micro PE, micro acquisitions, acquisition entrepreneurship, more of where you would consider the search funds at 10 million-ish, give or take. As the co-founder and now chairman of the board of Merger Labs, which is an agency specifically focused on digital marketing for search funds and other acquisition, firms, which is really kind of pretty cool, private equity and such, talk about a niche. And then as the CEO of CapTarget, which provides M&A research and deal origination services. And if you're in the space, you're on their mailing list because they go after everyone and their content is great. Plus, he has his own multifamily office that is just growing from strength to strength with Verde Holdings. I just, you know, given some of the conversations we've had with other guests talking about the benefits of family offices, about holding different types of companies and growing them, and I am just so looking forward to learning about how today's guest goes about looking at opportunities and kind of combining his efforts. So without much further ado. Hello, Gabe. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I am really excited to have you here. Uh, you know, as I was just telling the audience a second ago, your background is amazing. I mean, I've been reading so much about from your company, CapTarget, but everything else, it you just have this amazing entrepreneurial story, and I can't wait to talk about it. So, welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks, AJ. I'm happy to be here. It's a, a rarity to find people in my day
1: to day who want to talk about this kind of stuff. So I'm always excited to nerd <laughs> out with a, a fellow experiencer.
0: Sweet, we could we could do some hand gestures at the. I will probably be doing. I mean, I have this honorary Italian thing going on uh, with my hands, but no, I'm really excited to get into it because this is so much fun. What you've done, given you know everything that's going on, where do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Where are you on your own entrepreneurial journey? That's kind of the age old question, I think, for a lot of folks
1: in our positions and for me fairly recently in the last couple of years, right which were a blur right Well what is a couple of years anymore I don't know but mm-hmm. the last big sort of series of events for me was challenging myself to turn the corner on trading time for money, right which we all do in different respects. I mean I've been a, if not a founder or a chief executive or a CXO of a, a number of companies exited some businesses and we've built some that are I think built to last. But at some level, we're still kind of trading time for money, right? You show up at the office, you have your team meeting, you try to progress your agenda day by day, and, and we all do that thing. And don't get me wrong, you can build yourself into a position where you can trade time for pretty generous sums of money, right? For what we do, which is a wonderful gift in and of itself and a great reward for that level of work and introspection and leadership, all that stuff that has to happen just to like take a thing from you know nothing to something and i view that that whole trading time for money concept as the first you know 15 18 years of my entrepreneurial journey and somewhere in there i decided let's just start playing a different game i need to sort of opt out of this game the trading time for money game and play the what i consider sort of the value creation game from a little bit above my own clouds so for me That's really turned this corner into co-running the family office that I'm a partner of, but more importantly, treating my own balance sheet, whether it's professionalized or my literal personal balance sheet, as its own amalgamation of uh, conventional and alternative assets, and really trying to grow those by way of strategy and um, a little less by way of coming up with new ideas and inspiring people, which I love to do, and I've done okay doing some of that work. But I like to say I have enough resources to be dangerous now, and I'd like to think that I'm doing myself a disservice, not trying to be dangerous with them. You know, I've worked in, in our broader private equity and investment banking space for long enough to go um, out there in the world and see some really brilliant folks making huge sums of money and impacting businesses really positively. Frankly, I've seen some folks that are, I mean, they got to be, you know, as dumb as I am doing some really big things too. Somewhere in there, the two kind of clicked. And I said, look, if there are people doing this with other people's money and there's some sort of precedent set for what that track record looks like, uh, what that process looks like, can I do it with my own capital? And can I sort of become the proto manager of my own balance sheet? So, long answer to your short question really moving away from trading time for money and really getting into deploying capital through a professional lens um, with an entrepreneurial spirit behind it but through a professional lens to really create some much more significant gains in wealth than building and selling middle market companies which is fun but there's a new game I'm trying to play and I'm really challenging myself to be disciplined to play that game every day
0: now I and mean, that is really interesting because at the most basic I think so many of us entrepreneurs have difficulty even living beyond our own business. You know, it's so much the value I get is from growing X and selling X or you know, some future event. So we sacrifice, we say one day. And the reality is there's no guarantees. And if you have it, you should be investing. So, you know, just from that core concept right there. But I think many of us who are later in our journeys should kind of be thinking of that just listening because I've been you know looking at my own portfolio and saying oh yeah it's nice maybe I should put some more thought into all these things so I that concept I mean without a doubt it's <laughs> that is so important I think what's even more interesting you know, even going further into this because you know you do have a family yeah you know you've set up the family firm you have the structure you are looking that transition from wealth generation to not time, but really to kind of permanence. You know, you're looking at this concept of where it goes further, multi generational. Jokingly, ahead of the show, we were talking about acquisition and you know, all that, the different things, but talking about family businesses, you also get a whole bunch of different concepts that everyone uses shorthand on it. But what was that transition for you where you really decided long term? And I'm going to just say long-term capital, yeah, multi-generational. What was that? You were successful. You could have just really nice beaches with really nice cocktails. Instead, yeah, you're looking and you're actively spending your intellectual capital to go even further. What was that transition for you?
1: Well, number one, I mean, I'm calling in from San Diego, so it may not be uh, you know southern Spain, but we have pretty nice beaches you know, maybe I've seen better, but these are my beaches. I've grown up in the water here and on these beaches, you know, my whole life. So I'm pretty connected to these beaches. You know, beyond that, when we talk about private equity component of my entrepreneurial story, which we can get into, but you know, I mean, so many folks on this podcast and and, and similar conversations are sort of truly entrepreneurs, idea people, people, people. I have that experience, but I went into the private capital market side of entrepreneurship at some point and never really looked back. So I view the options as, say, the whether you're a, a sponsor or getting into that space by way of entrepreneurial acquisition, or you're a, you work for a fund or whatever, their job is capital deployment, right? Because you don't make any money without deployment. I, I don't care if you have a management fee, you've got a two and 20 split you're a young MBA or scrappy guy or gal who wants to run a company, you still got to deploy that capital to create the mechanism in which to generate a return. And that's fine. That's how it works. That's cool. But um, a fundamental focus on capital deployment as a business model, I think comes with some challenges because our incentives tend to skew towards deployment. I, I can't make money unless I deploy this capital. And that's just a reality. There are some use cases for that being a disastrous reality, because we got to spend money to make money, especially if it's not your money. So the other side of that coin, I just call capital preservation, right? It's moving beyond the need to deploy capital and into a conversation about how do I make sure this capital or some appreciated version of this capital exists 100 years from now. I actually was inspired to, to adopt that mindset by way of a conversation I had with some bankers who ran a niche uh, bank in the Midwest, we were having some beers here one day, and they were really excited to show me their their new strategic plan. Okay, I don't know. Uh, It's interesting. And they're really amped up this little management team about their strategic plan, little bank, but longevity. And they showed it to me pretty standard fare. And I felt like I was missing something. And I asked one of the guys, I was like, why, why are we so excited about this? You bank every three years, five years, I don't know, you roll out a new plan, seems pretty standard fare. And he said, well, no, this is our second plan. And I go, haven't you been a bank for like 100 and some odd years? He goes, yeah, we do 100 year planning cycles. Think about that. Think about the gravity of that. It's heavy duty. It doesn't work for everybody. But think about that. 100 year planning cycles. The freedom That is permitted to make mistakes for 99 years or to move a stone very slowly or a big ship or whatever the metaphor is, very slowly, so much so that the passengers on the ship cannot detect a change in course only to end up in some beautiful paradise, is really pretty prolific. And I can't say who does or doesn't plan like that, but I had not been exposed to a professionalized team that had a charter to plan in 100 year chunks before. And we don't have a 100-year charter by by any means, but it was a great example of what happens when we move beyond the immediate need to deploy capital to generate management fee, short-term ROI, hit a five-year IRR number, whatever the metric is, and instead move into what do we have to do to make sure this is all here and better, X terminal date, when I die which you know could be tomorrow hopefully it's not for another you know 50 60 years my life insurance people think i'm going to live to be 120 or something crazy so who knows anymore uh, so the capital preservation business is what i consider my business these days and there's a lot of moving parts to that and that portfolio is super diverse it includes operating businesses that i have a role in like cap target here where i'm still the you know the, the ceo by Title and I mean I I have a very active role, not a day to day, but an active role to being a fund to fund participant or being a third party LP in some larger real estate plays, or having a zany crypto conversation, or principally you know doing control acquisitions locally for a platform that we're, we're you know conducting a roll up for with a internalized management team. So. The challenge now is to be very diverse and to table the conversation about deploying capital and move into a conversation about preserving capital.
0: What is very interesting, though, as you talk about preserving capital, so many people think of it as like, okay, get to your bonds, you know, you're talking about actually having it be active. You know, you and I, a little right before the show, were joking about value generation versus and I say couponing, but sometimes it's not even couponing that goes on.
1: Arbitrage.
0: <laughs> yeah. And your thought process around value capital preservation is actually value generation. Obviously, you probably have a portfolio approach to this, but it does seem that value creation is kind of a core part of that. Are you looking at sort of where your family is going to be? You know, since in hundred years is generally three to four generations. You know, as we get older, it's more like three. My grandfather, you know, it's four for my great grandfather to, you know, it's <laughs> like, wait, they were 20, I was 35. Okay. We're, you know, my kids will be 80 when they have kids. You know, who knows? But as you look at that capital preservation and you know utilizing value generation, is it somewhat around what future generations of your family are, or are you is that not as much of a concern as the value generation? I think the, the multi-generational component
1: is a thought exercise. I mean, I don't have children. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to make any big promises here, but that's not an immediate focus as far as specific individuals who are being brought into a structure. It's really more of a disciplined thought exercise. But to the question about value creation, this might make me kind of old school. I'm kind of just hitting this hump where people are saying like, dude, that's not how we do things anymore. And I used to think I was cool and like pretty dialed in. And now the other day, we had a a phone call with one of our designers and we did it as a three-way. I just, I called my partner, I called her and she's, you know, young woman. And she said, three-way phone call, guy, like, what is this, 10 years ago? Like, we can't have a Zoom call? We didn't even think about it, right? We're just like, well, I was talking to, him and I'm talking to you. And and she's like, guys, this is is ridiculous. So I may be admittedly a little out of touch already, but this value creation edict we use as a fundamental uh, decision-making tool. When you're in the, just call it the alt asset, broad universe, It's venture, it's private equity, it's down market angel stuff, it's some, you know, debt instrument stuff, it can be crypto, it can be, you know, anything that's not a public equity, whatever. The alt universe is is really big and getting way bigger. It's impossible, I don't think it's realistic for me and my time and capacity and interest to become expert in all these alt opportunities, right? It's just, it's a really big ask. And if I don't understand it, we tend to not invest in it and if i don't have a connection to the value creation component of the investment we don't invest in it that doesn't mean it's not a bad deal or not a good deal or it doesn't mean anything it just means we understand that there needs to be a framework in which we make decisions that we're all totally aligned around like any operating business we at cap target we have one of those frameworks uh, both at a personal level and at a company you know culture and trajectory level but it allows us very quickly to look at this whole alt universe and just say I don't care about that number 1 or I'm not an expert. I tend to say I don't care as a funny thing internally. I'll just be like I don't I don't care about whatever or if there's not an apparent connection to real value creation as a matter of principle we don't do it. If there is an opportunity to arbitrage price inefficiencies of crypto between here and South Korean markets, whatever. Which there was, by the way, about five years ago. We don't do it because who who cares? Again, yeah, you could make some money there, but I can argue you can make some money doing everything. You and I could go start a business selling popsicles, whatever. We could go, uh, you know, Gary V style and go to a garage, whatever. Like we can make money doing something. So we need to have a better framework for decision making beyond. IRR targets and is this a prob- probability of success or failure, whatever? And so for us, it's do we care? Meaning, do we have some expert connection? Can we develop an expert connection to the end product service opportunity? And two, is the value creation component truly apparent? Don't get me wrong, I'm not making some like altruistic claim. We're not an impact investor. We're not only investing in green. And we, honestly, we don't have any of those kind of investments. Value doesn't need to be a pop culture phenomenon. It can it can be really literal stuff. Hey, this deal is going to put X more roofs over people's heads. This deal lowers the cost of doing this thing that all businesses do, and in turn creates you know an EBITDA opportunity for a whole sector. It can be as simple as that. And this may sound you know silly to some of your listeners. It, hopefully, it resonates with some. But there are a lot of opportunities that that simple connection between what are you doing and and where's the impact doesn't really exist. And I would argue now more than ever, because the alt investing world has become so diverse and so dynamic by way of digital everything that more often than I could have ever imagined even 10 years ago, you'll see a pitch deck and you'll read it and go, cool, this is probably going to make a bunch of money. But so what?
0: Yeah. It's the puppy that can poop gold. It's like, that's great. Well, yeah, well, now you can't even use it as fertilizer because it's gold. That's great. But what's going on? I mean, it's funny because I know I'm having difficulty getting early into crypto. And I kind of ignored it until a couple of years ago and was like, oh, something has happened. And recently, just by having assets in decentralized finance stuff, and seeing how advanced some people are getting in here, there is that fear of missing out. There's all this stuff that trying to focus and I'm hearing it from others. It's like, oh, well, you know what? I'm not going to go do X. I'm just going to go. And it's not spinning in a wheel because there's more to it than crypto than just saying it's a giant roulette. But it's in my head, I had a 20-year, you like, okay, this is cool and this is there's a good use case you know, my thoughts in 2012, you know, was this is a 32. Yeah, you know, this is something if a bunch of things happen to the, now, I'm worried. And using that focus that, you know, that intention that you utilize, I think is something a lot of us can. And it's not just crypto. I mean, I'm using it because that's today's bright, shiny object. But I think, you know, I'm definitely someone who has the squirrel condition using that framework
1: there's this idea of getting real about answering the question, what's the point? And you can take that as broadly as you want to, whether that's pondering, you know, why we're here, if here's even a place, or if we are we or, or yeah, whatever, I mean, you can, none of that really matters, because ultimately, all that means is physics works, or it doesn't work. And whether this is digital or analog, is just definitions. Don't worry about that part. But really more the tangible why am i here today tomorrow yesterday and this doesn't need to be a big philosophical debate but it can really help focus the effort output and help mitigate some of that fomo stuff which you know i try to keep my own ego in check but i'll brag about one thing and that's i got no fomo i don't care what you're doing i got a sweet life i don't i don't need more sweet life i got a sweet life and you know what before i had a sweet life i still had a sweet life i was broke but i still was in love and had a car that started and w- lived in a beautiful place and, and you know had a family that was alive, still is, you know. So I'm not worried about missing out on Bitcoin at 500k because whatever, I don't know. I, I don't see the value today. I don't, I don't have an expert connection to it. But that's seated again in this idea of what what's the point? What are we trying to do here at the firm level? What are we trying to do individually in a, in a fairly tangible way? And answering that "what's the point?" question allows us to move pretty quickly beyond FOMO, beyond second guessing investments, beyond kicking around zany startup ideas. You know, my one of my business partners, who I attribute shout out Paul Sadowitz, I attribute all of our good ideas to. I'm not an idea guy. Probably 98 of his ideas were totally terrible, but actually, out of 100, let's say 95, but five were really good. Right, and having a real anchored perspective on what am I trying to do personally? What are we as a team trying to do? Allows us really quickly to say, could we start a XYZ company and make money? Yeah. It's not the point, right? That's not why we agreed to be here. That's not why fate, our interest, circumstances put us here together because we've agreed our point is something else. And it allows us to shed a lot of the nonsense really quickly and Have we lost a huge amount of money or at least opportunity cost along the way? Totally. But we got sweet lives. What else can we hope for? You know, when we talk about this perspective or my one guy's perspective in the context of entrepreneurship, rather than investing, you know, we come back to some real harsh truths that you and I have talked about. One being, look, a lot of us tie up a lot of our net worth, potential upside, future plans in the liquidity event, right? When I sell this business, dot, dot, dot. And we run the business today like we're selling it tomorrow, which is prudent, I think is great. But the statistical probability of you selling tomorrow is basically none, right? Most businesses are total crap by the numbers. You know, I mean, we look at businesses all day long to acquire, 99 fail. We run a whole professionalized organization around sourcing opportunities at CapTarget for private equity funds, big corporate buyers. And we generate thousands, maybe tens of thousands of leads per year. And, you know, one in a hundred closes. So just the high-level data, pretty quickly, we can get to a place as entrepreneurs where we should be saying, look, if this thing sells, cool, awesome. Let's not plan on it selling. Unless you're hell-bent on engineering a sale, and you and I have talked about, we both lived through selling our agencies and certain businesses, including agencies, you can kind of engineer either on the way up or on the way down because it's it's horse trading. It's people and contracts. There's not a lot of IP, whatever. But We got to do better than just assuming we're going to get a bunch of money at some point in the future and then waiting for that day to come by just running a good business, whatever that looks like for every individual entrepreneur. So when I think about this idea of capital preservation, it's actually seated in the uncertainty of entrepreneurship, right? It's not some investor guy strategy. I don't claim to be any sort of sophisticated investor. It's pretty basic, pretty ghetto what we do. But it's based in the entrepreneurial cycle that I've lived through, you know, starting a dozen businesses, selling three of them, trying to sell one three or four times, and we could never sell it. And really trying to embody this spirit that I can't count on tomorrow dollars, really, or future to be valued asset that has either no value or made up value today. As an aside, I always tell entrepreneurs on their balance sheet to put their businesses, you know, enterprise value at zero. Because it's worth nothing until somebody pays you for it. So let's not pretend our balance sheet has this thing that's worth $30 million on it, but it's not worth $30 million because you don't have $30 million and nobody wants to pay you $30 million for it, right? So if we understand some of these basic dynamics of business acquisition and failure rates and integration failure rates and and all that, pretty quickly, I think it forces us to adopt the perspective of capital preservation, right? What can I do today with the assets, the team, the IP? The liquidity, the penetration into a market, the customer list, whatever, to ensure that there's value here, not just tomorrow for our fictitious sale, but next year, five years from now, whatever. How do we build businesses that don't really ever die or have the mechanics to survive almost anything and still create value to the market and to stake and shareholders? So there's there's a connection here to entrepreneurship and some of the fallacies that pop culture entrepreneurship. Really preaches hard to us about tomorrow being our big win, right? Let's forget about that, and, and let's get into let's get real, and let's build a strategy that protects all the hard work, people, blood, sweat, and tears we put into these things.
0: Yeah, it is interesting, and I'll try to not not get us into too of a geeky digression. But I've been fascinated with some of the concepts coming up around DAOs that kind of extension of sort of the employee-owned, and then like some of the German permanent companies that are basically stewarded by non-owners with a combination of the stakeholders. And looking at what is possible with some of the DAOs, yes, there are ways to make money, but there's also this concept that you are trying to create something much longer. So I think there's some fascinating things happening What are you finding fascinating right now? I mean, you're touching on so much. You're looking, you're involved, you know, you're basically in the position where you're doing what you want to be doing. You have no FOMO, living your best life. My teenage daughter would give me the thing. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Living my best life. Yeah, all the, you know, the TikToks and the reels. But like, what are you finding interesting right now as an entrepreneur looking out there?
1: For me, and this is probably kind of a boring answer, because it's sort of inside our walls answer, but it took me a really long time. And I think we had a lot of accidental success, not prioritizing the value of people, really simply. And you know, maybe it's like my third read of good to great in the last 15 years or whatever, or the luxury of being able to pay more for talent or wait till the right people are on the bus, whatever the metaphor is. But the thing I've become You know, almost like obsessed with in fairly recent history, particularly living through COVID, running all of our business remotely, making, you know, we acquired a platform company over summer. We've made three or four other, you know, significant investments during that period. And after, you know, being interested in new spaces and new strategies and new options that are presented to me as my, you know, my net worth grows a little bit or my experience uh, gets a little rounder. And at the end of the day, It keeps coming down to, we need to be really, really interested in understanding, cultivating and sourcing great people. And with these great people, we can do anything, right? We can buy a company and turn it around. We can launch a new product. We can increase the LTV of our customer without having to change the business model beyond the business model changing to prioritize the right butts in the right seats and really finding great people. And I think a lot of times when we hear about great people, I think there's this subtext that great people are industry leaders, they're super senior. As an entrepreneur, I think there's this sort of wink, wink, they're expensive, right? Great people. Yeah, you're going to have to poach the other guy from the billion dollar competitor and you have to pay him or her a bunch of money. And that's not what great people is about. I thought that's what great people was about for most of my hiring has been in the last 10 years. It's not about that at all. It's about, shared experience, shared values, and like day one alignment. That's what a great person to me is, is somebody who on day one says, yep, I think the same way about these, these uh, you know, uh, goals, but I might think a different way about how we solve them or how we achieve them. And from that diversity of thought with aligned culture comes the opportunity to do anything. You know, like I've got some people on my team now. I, unfortunately, I'm probably the weak link in a lot of ways. But my family office partner, this guy's a Swiss Army knife. We can look at a deal. He's sort of new to private equity, but he's a very seasoned deal guy. He comes from a commercial real estate investing background. And like, I can be tied up and say, go to this pitch meeting, figure out what this company's worth, get all the docs in order, and then call me when you're done. Okay it's the people. So I am now very, very interested, probably a little late to my own personal story arc, but um, very, very interested in just what's the right person? What's the next person look like here? And how do those people augment the possible future that we're looking to end up in someday?
0: Without a doubt, with everything that's going on in the world, the great resignations, you know, this kind of the seeking of value in employment, how do you work on that? you know, now that this is important, because I think I know for myself, there's, I found I'm very lucky. There's a certain type of, you know, nerdy, you know, curiosity seeker that I just gel, mind meld with, but then normal people, uh, yeah, real functioning people in society I have difficulty with. So it's like, okay, I can't just create nerd companies. Uh, You know, you need a mix of people. How do you go about book? Course, you know what is it that you use to help you become a better people person? Right, if that's the term.
1: I mean, I don't know if there's a silver bullet, and I don't make any claims to be a really good people person at all. I, I mean, I truly think I'm. It's my big deficiency, right? Like a week ago, I think I ran my first productive meeting. I kid you not. Straight up, it was it was shocking to me. I walked away. It was like, wow, that that was different. That really worked. Uh, what did I do? So I don't necessarily know if I have a real concise answer for you there. But I do think just putting a pin in something I said earlier, this idea that, and to your point, we don't want to build companies on our own image as individuals. That's a really dangerous thing, right? You get this cult of personality thing that has worked for some pretty you know high visibility companies, but generally doesn't work. I mean, consistently. And of course, I tell anybody who says something similar, like, look, bro, There was one Steve Jobs. I know he's inspirational to you. Like, you want to be the next Elon Musk? Like, cool. I hope you do it. We need more people like that in the world. But like, there's one in like 8 billion. And so, if if we're playing with those LODs, go play the Lotto and we can do some other stuff that have one in 150 million and similar upside, right? So, what are we actually talking about? So, we want to be wary about building that cult of personality. But I think this convergence of diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, which comes from being from different cultures, being from different places. And it's overlap with shared values. And I'm not talking about company values, which we're sort of all our companies are moving away from a little bit and into more of what we call a personal archetype, right? More of the stuff in here, not we buy into we like to treat customers well, and we'll razzle dazzle people, or we want to be the biggest whatever by Q4, whatever. But really back to this idea, that we're trying to find people that have some core seated beliefs internally regardless of their backgrounds that align with with all of us and we talk a lot about our cap target archetype or with the company we just bought the juniper archetype and they're all different but we think that personal archetype is the thing that really drives that gelling process so i think that's important but as far as how as an individual i work on that you know i i i think i've just assumed it's going to be a forever struggle i think in this great resignation, shout out Reddit backslash anti-work subreddit, which is just people telling their bosses to go, you know, pound sand. It's awesome. It's just, it's just, you know, like text messages, like, can you come in tomorrow? No, I have tomorrow off. It's awesome. It's just people quitting. I love it. Knock on wood. We haven't had any of that happen. And I don't believe it's because we pay people a bunch of money. I don't think, you know, I think we're pretty average employer by way of benefits, whatever. But with this you know, with all these people wanting what they view as fair, I view as fair, I think one of the things we don't talk enough about is this pursuit of personal autonomy, at least in America, right? I mean, you're in in Europe now, I know it's a very different world. But if this last little bit of time has taught us anything, which is pretty wacky, it's that Americans like their autonomy, right? But table political autonomy, COVID stuff, whatever, because we don't need to get into it. But just as individuals, particularly at work, where we spend a lot of time of our life, Producing something. We need to come up with systems that both create environments that support autonomous workforce and culture that really encourages autonomous thinking, autonomous action. And we've tried to adopt strategies at all of our companies that really focus on it's okay to make mistakes. This is part of our culture. We want you to make mistakes. We don't want you to make the same mistake twice. That's our only expectation. Nobody will punish you for making mistakes because we value your autonomous call it intra entrepreneurial journey in our organization much more highly than a certainty of positive outcome and as long as that becomes a, an iterative process where we say you're an autonomous person you're here because we know your brain makes good decisions we also recognize that it won't always make good decisions and that's okay and we're going to learn from it together that seems to have a little something to do with our high retention rate and our I think generally, you know, pretty happy team. I'm sure there's more to it. I'm kind of a rogue, unemployable guy, like many entrepreneurs you talk to, I value my autonomy to come and go in the investment bank I left to start the company whose offices I'm sitting in now, I basically quit because they wanted me to check in and out when I left for meetings and went to the field. It's just like, bro, like, do you trust that I can do this deal or not? Like if you don't, not a negative reflection of you or me. I just know I'm not a good fit and I'll leave. But if you do, why are we spending admin hours on me logging when I go to lunch with a client? That seems silly, you know, so I'm just not going to do this silly stuff. And I went back to school and did some other stuff with my time while starting CapTarget. But that carried with me a lot. You know, I have an innate desire for the ability to be autonomous. And I think every American in our workforce at some level does too. And if you don't, that's okay. There are some jobs that that work well for that. Go join the military. Go do something where somebody tells you what to do all the time. But I think we're inching towards a world where you have to let these people be the people they are and teach them as they go. We have to move beyond management right, of people and into true leadership and true learning. right, Training and leadership, not management. That's sort of where I think we're headed.
0: I like that because... I would say it's not just Americans. I mean, I hire people around the globe. And yeah, that wanting to have that better workplace, to have the ability to improve and to grow is something, yeah, you know, that autonomy, you know, is something I'm seeing everywhere. And I'm surprised sometimes when I'm, you know, working with someone from Bulgaria and I'm like, wow, you know, I you get kind of now this is last, but a couple of years ago, everyone was like, Oh yeah, it's so cookie. You get X, this country X. You hire from this and you get X, Y, or Z. And now it's like, wait, country Western and this, and oh, you're building this, you're trying to. That is one culture is becoming global, even as globalization, you know, from business and stuff has been happening. But culture and just that mindset. So, you know, seeing that American autonomy. Expanding, that is cool. I and I like that approach to sort of looking at sort of does it improve their ability to have a journey, with obvious you know obviously your collection of companies attaining value from their own growth from their journey, but that's you know that's a trade off versus you're going to do this. So we pay. I think too often companies look at it as not a mutual exchange of value. Totally. I think a lot of us are afraid of our employees.
1: We got to go beyond, I'm afraid he's going to leave if he figures out he's worth more money, or I'm afraid she's going to leave because uh, she's bored at her debt. We got to do better than I'm afraid these people are going to leave and not come at this from a place of retroactive, protect the company, and really into a conversation. Again, a capital preservation and asset preservation conversation about how do we create an environment that will function today, tomorrow? Ten years from now, twenty years from now, and and what can we do to get there sooner than later? And you know, no company is perfect, but I think if we can push the conversation really deliberately down that that avenue, it'll benefit all of us. We got to stop being afraid of these people. They're trying to help. We're all here trying to do the same thing, right? Company fails, we all fail. Our clients fail, we all fail. And as long as we hire people who understand that, and most people understand that, I think we're good. And In there somewhere, we've been talking about that a lot, this next sentiment a lot in all of our companies very recently, a correction of the thinking of management of a lot of particularly mid-sized companies that have grown out of being small, but often the managers are just the most senior people. The guy who thought of the idea, the woman who developed the product, the first hire who's been there for 15 years because she's friends with the boss and is pretty good at her job. That middle market management deficit is doesn't really benefit anybody, I don't think. And because of that, I think we need to start as as managers, as leaders of people, acknowledging that I don't care if you're a greeter at Walmart, if you're a a lawnmower pusher at one of our landscaping companies, if you're a data entry person who never talks to a customer and just gets a ticket and fills out a spreadsheet. Regardless of your job, us as managers, us as leaders, we need to acknowledge that there is a a reality where that person pushing the lawnmower wants to be the best lawnmower pusher around, period, or wants to be some future iteration of a guy who used to push a lawnmower, but was proud of the work he or she did, right? Those people exist at every level of the workforce. And we need to move beyond, well, the the warehouse guys, they don't really speak English. So we we don't bug them with these meetings. And into this idea that, Everybody has the capacity to desire and achieve excellence at some contextualized level of their experience. And if management believes that, all of a sudden everything changes.
0: Because you have to make then the role of pushing the lawnmower valuable. It's not just go do, yeah, because too often it's like you do X, but like literally, yeah, that mindset, you're changing the concept. It's like if I'm asking you to do something, Yes, it may be busy or maybe blah, blah. yeah. But if you know I'm putting the effort into making it valuable for you, then yeah, it doesn't matter if it's... I still think some of my original jobs as a kid, pushing a lawnmower was one of them. (laughs) Yeah, the the value just how much that has impacted on me. I like that. I'm going to, you know, this is where I always love because I'm too busy asking you questions and listening to you here, but re-listening to these and pulling out a lot of the different value and stringing them together, I think is going to be really, really impactful. Given, you know, everything and what we've been talking about and your focus on long-term and value creation stuff, how do you go about defining success for yourself now? Do you use a formal process or is this more of a cloud of concepts? How are you defining your own success?
1: You know, maybe a little bit of, of both. I mean, I'm pretty tactical with my, my planning. I mean, there's a lot of lists. There's a lot of, I set goals for myself every quarter, personally, professionally. They're usually measurable goals, um, often financial, whether it's hitting a net worth number or a liquidity ratio number or a diversification number. I mean, I, I do that habitually so much so that I think a lot of the people in my life might think it's a little extreme. Then I've eased up on it over the years because it's a little less critical these days if I hit it today or hit it tomorrow, but I still want to hit those goals. Those are more professional and financial goals. The personal quandary what is success is, I think, an absolute fallacy. Being here is a success. It's totally a miracle. that I mean, that I'm talking to a dude on the internet across the world. Like, what is success? we successful. Yes. I have a computer. I've got. I've got this thing. It's the has the sum total of human knowledge. I keep it. It sits on my butt every day. That's success,
0: right? <laughs> Your butt sits and, on and the sum total. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: crazy. Totally crazy. And that's not to minimize the challenges that human existence produces. And certainly we're in very great positions by way of resource access, security, freedom. I mean, some of the fundamental things that make it enjoyable to live, right? We have those and I want to recognize those. But I don't think you need to have all of that to be a success. And I think there's a lot of use case and anecdotal data and stories and experiences around the guy who lives in the Sahara who has a stick and a family and And all he does is smile, and they don't have words for depression, right, in their language. That seems like a success. So I think being here, being engaged with your community, working towards something, anything, as long as it's not harmful and productive, I think that's a success. And I would argue that almost all of us globally, you know, we need to really start rallying around our our successes and our ability to succeed because. So much of the conversation as capitalism has dominated or the perspective of westernized culture for quite a while now has become attached to the stuff and like I'm a stuff guy like I got cars that you don't want to know about like I got stuff, believe me, but the stuff doesn't define me. honestly, if there wasn't a huge tax incentive to have a lot of stuff, I probably would have no stuff, but I, I don't want to pay fifty five percent taxes or whatever so table that. but I think we need to move beyond this stuff and into you've got a family you connect with you've got a, a life where you're in charge of your decisions uh, i've got the opportunity to do all this stuff you know i mean my father immigrated from mexico you know late later you know in, in, as a young adult and he's a great success in my eyes so personally let's own that we're almost you know a lot of us are successful just being us and that's enough and everything else is icing on the cake and when you measure it by any other means you're going to get down a FOMO spiral, you know, some other negative spiral that doesn't benefit any of us. And much like employers needing to be less afraid of their employees, I think we need to really argue for a redefinition of success and not be afraid of the impact of saying, what if we're all successful? What if being here is enough and this is a success? I mean, some systems collapse if that happens globally, and that wouldn't be beneficial. But I think the future of there being 8 billion of us or whatever, or 10 billion of us, is we need to own our collective success and start reframing some of the problems and some of the goals we have in a way that are, are productive.
0: What I find interesting about that is, yeah, I do actually do think we're looking at, someone might have said once upon a time, the best of times, the worst of times. We are looking at abundance in so many things yet the transition period is going to be quite difficult because energy which is this huge you know such a drain carbon and all that all of a sudden with the progression of solar wind and geothermal etc you know it's like all of a sudden it's like oh in 5 to 10 years potentially we're going to be in an overabundance of power you know, all these things yes the transition and yes, if everyone just now said, no, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm fine where I am, yeah, that could be an issue. But I do think we're going to be looking at a world where abundance is the general structure. It's just going to be an interesting 5, 10, 20, hopefully not much longer years into that concept. Well, at I, least yeah, we
1: can hope that we at, in mass can believe that that's a possible outcome and really work towards it. You know, I think a lot of the whether it's social political whatever that negative conversation happens here, I mean it's amplified here because I'm here, I'm sure it's a similar but different conversation for you where you are. I view that as the trapped animal in the corner. The people that are winning, the ideas that are winning, the trajectory that is best doesn't need to run around screaming at the top of its lungs. We're here and we're winning, right? because it's the inevitability. So I think a lot of the stuff that we hear, whether it's COVID-related, politics-related, macroeconomic-related, there's certainly some big concerns. And that transition is going to be, I think, really painful that, that you're talking about. I think we're living through it now, and it's painful and scary in a lot of ways for a lot of people. But I think all that noise only exists because it's the screams of dying ideals. And hopefully, we can transcend that into something that's better. And if we can't, we will have made the collective choice not to. And that'll be that. And nobody will ever hear this again.
0: And that's okay. We had a good run. Let's hope it's a longer run. I really appreciate you coming here on the show. I mean, I've gained a lot of, and I know you don't personally write it, but from Cap CapTarget, your newsletter and just your general conversations in some of the communities, I think, like I said, I found it in um, Searchfunder Besides going to look at cap target, where can people, you know, engage with you? Where should they go? You know, social media. You know, where would you suggest our audience goes? I'm not going to suggest they don't engage with me,
1: but I will say that I am a staunch anti-social media person. I don't, I don't have any social footprint of any uh, real substance because I don't care what anybody's doing out there. If you know me, call me, stop by the house, knock on the door, whatever. But um, certainly, you can find me uh, by name. Uh, at LinkedIn which I do check periodically I'm happy to connect with folks in a, a professional capacity otherwise you know our companies are not super associated with each other but I do spend time at a leadership role here at CapTarget a board position at Merger Labs and my day-to-day at Fairday our holding company which doesn't have a lot of public um, exposure but hit me up on LinkedIn you can find my email by googling my name which it's a mixed blessing, but feel free to shoot me an email. And um, you know, I I love to connect with like-minded folks, whether they're in the space, starting their journey, same place, whatever. We need each other to figure this all out, and I certainly haven't figured out what little I have um, in a vacuum. So we should all keep that conversation going.
0: Okay, you've been so kind with what you've shared today. I mean, this has been a lot. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm going to have to, you know, there's so much to unpack and so much to learn from. This. We covered thank some you crowd. so much yeah. for your gender. Yeah. I mean, look, this is what's kind of fun. Sometimes this is like a quick little conversation. Other times it's like, wait, what does the entrepreneurial journey? So Gabe, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you, AJ. Awesome time.
0: Hey everyone. I know I've said this many, many times here when I get a chance to talk to such great entrepreneurs or people who have these amazing experiences. It's wonderful to get unique advice or things we haven't heard before that we can kind of ponder and bring into our own efforts. But while Gabe shared some great ideas that I really want to kind of explore, what I think is most interesting for us as entrepreneurs to take into play is this concept that, he has very unique and very deep thinking around things that we read is very important for entrepreneurs to consider and that we probably all know we need to be doing you know he talks about stuff like transitioning from trading time for money to value creation he talks about aspiring to build for the long term dealing with fomo and then this concept that i think is wonderful because it kind of encapsulates Everything he seems to be working towards is this capital preservation, not just for its own thing or fear or anything else. He's using it to balance the experience of the entrepreneurial drive. As entrepreneurs, we are on a roller coaster, no matter what, even the luckiest, the best. There's always going to be that concept that we cannot predict what will be worth in the future. So by utilizing capital preservation along his efforts, he's able to provide a better life that gives himself this ability to build his family business, reducing his FOMO, even though, as he says, you know, he, even before he had money, he had a good life. He had a car that started, he had family. Things that we should all look, but driving it. So look, take from Gabe and consider like, how are you transitioning from that time to money to value creation? And I think also think about it on a daily basis. Yes, we're trying to be strategic in our ideas, but he's looking at the little things he can do to consistently build his practice of being able to be a better long term thinker, you know, moving into this concept of building things for the long term. So as you move from time to money to value creation. What are these things we're doing? Why are we doing this? Gabe's concept it is this value of building for the long term because he's able to then balance this efforts. What are we doing with this and what are we able to do as we go about our own choices as entrepreneurs to protect ourselves from the wild swings that happen. So, really good. And then, you know, really kind of um, aspiring to build for the long term. This episode of Beyond A Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So, if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.